word of caution. This episode contains details of stalking and murder that may be difficult for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. January is National Stalking Awareness Month. Chances are either you or someone you know has been a victim of stalking. One in three women and one in six men will experience stalking in their lifetime. Stalking is defined as a pattern of behavior directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to feel fear and or suffer substantial emotional distress. The vast majority of stalkers know their victims. Stalking is a difficult thing to live through. I know, I've been through it twice in my lifetime. It caused me many years of anxiety, depression, and insomnia when I was in my late teens and early 20s. The first time was with a boyfriend I had in high school and college, before I even knew what stalking was. I became aware of the stalking behavior after our relationship ended, but there had been red flags before that. The second time I experienced stalking was in my sophomore year of college. I shared the details this past spring on the podcast Strictly Stalking. If you're interested, you can find my story on episode 169, Chaos on Campus. I won't get into all the details here, other than to say I know I'm lucky and things could have turned out differently, but being a victim of stalking changed the way I go about my life. I used to consider myself an extrovert, and I don't anymore. I'm very selective about who I spend time with. I try to practice situational awareness whenever I can. The organization SPARC or the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center, is a federally funded project providing education and resources about the crime of stalking. SPARC aims to enhance the response to stalking by educating the professionals tasked with keeping stalking victims safe and holding offenders accountable. SPARC ensures that allied professionals have the specialized knowledge to identify and respond to the crime of stalking. You can learn more about the organization online at stalkingawareness.org or on Instagram at the account Follow Us Legally. Today, we're speaking with Debbie Riddle, a North Carolina resident whose sister Peggy died at the hands of her stalker, a former boyfriend, in 2003 after being stalked for years. Peggy's story has been featured on the investigation discovery show Stalked, Someone's Watching, and Stalking, Real Fear, Real Crime with Aaron Brockovich. Debbie has made it her life's work to raise awareness about stalking and become an agent for change in the way law enforcement and legislation handles the crime of stalking. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 81 National Stalking Awareness Month, and Peggy Clinky's story. Debbie Riddle became an advocate for stalking awareness when her youngest sister Peggy was murdered by a stalker on January 18, 2003, after documenting the stalking behavior to multiple law enforcement agencies. 
The month after Peggy's murder, Debbie began to speak out about stalking, using Peggy's story as a catalyst for change, and she is now one of the country's leading speakers on stalking and has made strides towards changing the way communities deal with stalking crimes. While working with the Stalking Resource Center and Lifetime Television, Debbie helped create the Roll Call video, an 18-minute stalking awareness training video produced primarily for use with law enforcement training. Today, the video is utilized across the U.S. to train all divisions of our criminal justice system, as well as forensic nurses, victims' advocates, and college women's centers and their staff. The first segment of the video focuses on Peggy's stalking ordeal and highlights many of the methods stalkers use to terrorize their victims. The second portion of the video features retired Lieutenant Mark Wynn, a nationally recognized stalking expert and law enforcement trainer. This video helps law enforcement to recognize, investigate, and prosecute stalking cases more successfully. Debbie spoke at a congressional briefing requesting U.S. Congress to recognize January, the month Peggy was murdered, as Stalking Awareness Month. In 2022, she was awarded the Governor's Award for Excellence in the state of North Carolina for all her efforts to promote stalking awareness. It is the highest honor a state employee may receive for dedicated service to the state of North Carolina and its residents. Today, she continues to speak at training sessions, webinars, college campus trainings, high school and youth groups throughout the U.S. You can learn more about Debbie at the website stalkingmuststop.org. Hi, Debbie. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So to get us started, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your sister Peggy was like? Sure. So I am the oldest of four. Um, Peggy was uh, the third in the birth order, so the youngest girl. Um, she she was like the best of the best. Um, it, my other sister and I refer to her as the hot sister because she was born with blonde hair, blue eyes, um, was a cheerleader, um, involved in many things in school. Uh, I feel like, you know, she had friends wherever she went and she was one of those girls i mean up into adulthood that she'd walk into a room and you'd be like oh there's there's peggy it was just that 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 sense of um happiness if you will and she um she was the girl in our family who continued on with dancing like we all took dancing lessons as kids but she really excelled in it and danced you know all the way through high school into college um she was into health and wellness before health and wellness was a thing. So she got very interested in yoga, um, interested in spirituality. She became a yoga instructor. Um, you know, we made a lot of fun of her for all the things that she did, but um, she really, really um, had all of these uh, perfect things sort of working in her world. So just a, just a great, a great girl. I, I mean, I smile whenever I think of her. And how did she meet the man who would eventually become her stalker? So um, our family is from Ohio and Peggy was over uh, living in Italy for about a year. And when she came back to the States, um, she ended up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Peggy already had her undergraduate degree and was considering going on to medical school. So she enrolled in some classes out um, 
at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, um, kind of to you know forward her academic career towards this um, medical school idea she was thinking of. And in one of those classes, she met her stalker, Patrick Kennedy. And were there any red flags in their relationship that Peggy or you or other family members noticed? So what was interesting about this relationship is, you know, Peggy began um, dating Patrick and it was very, I guess, textbook dating at the beginning. You know, we would talk about like, oh, he had asked her out to dinner or they had gone to the movies or they had, you know, gone on some outdoor adventure, hiking or whatever. And there really wasn't too much concern, but this was in the fall. So when Peggy had come home for Christmas, um, you know, we had already knew about this guy that she was dating and um but we didn't know you know how much Peggy had told him about her life you know where she lived what her family was like and right before Christmas um this man shows up on my mother's front doorstep now mind you he's from Albuquerque we live in Ohio this was long before um the age of the internet so how do you find out where someone lives and my family lives in a pretty small town in Ohio. So that to me was a huge red flag. Like, what are you doing here? How did you find my mother's address? Um, when I opened that door and Peggy was standing behind me on the stairs looking at him and he said, hey, I'm, I'm here to surprise you for the holidays. And I turned around and the look on my sister's face was not only one of surprise, but a little shocked. And I'm sure she had kind of that same process in her head, like, how did you know where my mother lived? And, you know, the, that short time that he spent with us, you know, he immediately tried to drive a wedge between Peggy and her family, um, tried to pull her away from us. You know, if we were doing something, you know, Peggy was not permitted to be involved. And that sort of became the theme. Um, there were family vacations that we went on that he was not invited to. But at the end of the day, you know, he coerced his way into these vacations and came along with Peggy. And those were, that was seven days of absolute hell having him along. It, it wasn't her boyfriend or her partner. Um, it was more like her supervisor. You know, he just, he wasn't happy with anything that was making Peggy happy. Um, I had conversations with her. It was very surfacey of what was going on. Peggy never came forward to anyone in our family and told us how, you know, frightened she was of this guy. My other sister really honed in on what was going on with Peggy. And at one point, Peggy had been invited to go to Germany, um, you know, I think it was New Year's Eve of 99 going into the 2000s. And my sister was absolutely irate with this idea and said, you know, no one's ever going to believe me about this guy until Peggy comes home in a body bag. So, you know, like I said, we watched this unfold. We watched these red flags. Um, there's only so much that we were able to do. Peggy was, you know, 30 years old. Um, we all thought that she could handle it and she could make the decision to get out of this toxic relationship. How long were they actually together before she decided to leave the relationship? Um, they started, 
I think in the fall of 98 is when she met him on campus and she left him in 2002, January of 2002. So they dated for quite some time and then they moved in together. So they lived together for a few years. And then what happened when she decided to leave the relationship? Um, it, we'd know this about domestic violence victims, um, that that moment when they decide to leave an abusive relationship is the most critical time in their life because what is going to happen to me if I decide to walk away from this? And I think this is why it took Peggy so long to actually, you know, step out of this relationship because of, because of fear. Um, what was the punishment going to be? So the day she decided to leave, because they lived together, she waited until Patrick wasn't home. And she was able to find an apartment. She was able to pack up with her car with the things that she could. She drove those things to that apartment, dropped that first load off. And when she came back, um, the key code on the garage door was changed. So she couldn't get back into the garage. So she went to the front of the house and the front door was barricaded. And, you know, Peggy was knocking on the door, trying to figure out if she couldn't get in. And um, the police showed up. And Patrick put this amazing scene on in front of law enforcement saying, you know, he was terrified that someone was harassing him and his girlfriend was trying to leave him and he wanted to keep her, you know, there in that home to be safe with him. And the officer, um, and I think here making a very critical mistake, asked Peggy in front of Patrick, Peggy, is there anything else that you want to tell me? And Peggy said she remembers looking at Patrick and he had that look, you say one word and I'll kill you. And so Peggy said to the officer, no officer, there's nothing else I want to say. I just want to get my things and leave. And so that was that, that turning point when Peggy went from a victim of an abusive relationship into becoming a stalking victim. So from she moved into another, another apartment in New Mexico, but then she also ended up having to leave the state at some point, right? Correct. So she moved um, into that apartment in January of 2002. She stayed there, I think, until about August. So within that time frame, um, you know, Patrick started the stalking with, you know, the phone calls, the text messages. They were very cyclical with, um, you know, please call me. I really want to talk to you. Um, come, you know, can we meet for coffee? I really love you to you fucking bitch. If you don't pick up the phone, I'm going to kill you the next time I see you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that that message was a little harsh. And so these were, these were the messages that Peggy would get pretty much on a daily basis, as well as text messages. Um, Peggy, um, she was working in pharmaceutical sales. So she met someone else while she was working. They began dating and she said very clearly, look, I have, I have a stalker and it's pretty relentless. I just, I want you to know that's what's going on in my life. And Mark uh, said, not a problem. I'm sure I can handle it. It's not that big a deal. So Patrick found Mark's work number and started calling Mark. Um, and then he's following Peggy to work and, you know, to her yoga studio and he's sitting outside 
you know, while she's working and while she's, you know, teaching yoga class, just sitting there in this car, staring at her and she's not, she's not engaging. And this is making him very angry because their relationship was never based on love. Um, it was based on power and control. So the person that Patrick had power over for so long um, is pretty much powerless at this point. He decides um, because Peggy is not communicating with him um, that he's, he's going to get in front of her and she's walking into work one morning and he jumps out um, from behind some bushes and he's got a wedding ring engagement ring and a dozen red roses. And he says, I love you. Will you marry me? And Peggy said, absolutely nothing and walked in and shut the door behind her. So at this point, he's not feeling that he lost the love of his life. He is enraged because again, he doesn't have control over this woman that he controlled for so many years. Um, and because you know, Peggy is not giving him anything. She's not answering his call. She's not, you know, responding to him. Even when she sees him out in public, he's really very angry at this point. So he, um, he makes a flyer, just an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And he puts Peggy's picture on it and he writes her name on it. And he writes, I'm a whore. I'm a slut. Um, I'd love to have sex with you. Uh, Many other things were written on that flyer, but he put her cell phone number on it and he put them, several hundred of them throughout the city of Albuquerque. And one of them was on her yoga studio. And so when she walked in the next day, um, the owner said, you know, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but this was stuck to the door. This is, this is four months of what Peggy has been going through. And Peggy decides along with Mark that they're finally going to go talk to the police. They, Peggy and Mark walk into the police department with the flyer and tell the officer what's been happening. And the, the message was come back to us when something happens. And Peggy and Mark decide, okay, they leave the police department. Um, as they get on the highway, they're chased by Patrick, um, tailed by him. He's got a gun in the car. He runs them off the road. Peggy and Mark get off the freeway. They go back to um, law enforcement and tell them, you know, what had just happened. And again, the message is, you know, come back to us when something happens. In June of 2002, so we're six months in, into this stalking, uh, Peggy and Mark fly to Florida where my brother is getting married. Patrick was well aware of my brother getting getting married. He had my brother's phone number. I mean, he had all our numbers. He had been to all of our homes. So um, what Patrick does is he sets the stage and he calls my brother and says, um, you know, I hope you have a wonderful wedding day. I'm sorry that I can't be there with you. Um, I'm sorry that things and I, between, between Peggy and I didn't work out, very delusional. Um, but, you know, I just want you to know, I, you know, best wishes are coming from me and hangs up the phone. He, um, while we're in Florida, Patrick gets on a plane in Albuquerque, he flies to Ohio, he drives to my mother's house and on her white garage doors, he spray paints PK as a whore on my mother's garage. 
We don't know that this is happening. Um, the neighbor across the street called my mother the next day and told her about it. Um, they had taken some photos. My mother called the local police department. We filed a police report. We sent that report out to the city of Albuquerque where Patrick was living and doing you know, most of the stalking and where Peggy was residing. So again, nobody was hurt. It's not that big a deal. It's just spray paint. A few days after that incident, um, we're all out to dinner. And um, of course, back in the day before, like Instagram and Facebook, you know, nobody has their phone at dinner because there's no pictures of food being posted. It wasn't a thing back in the day. So, but we leave and um, Mark picks up his cell phone and he's got six missed calls. Um, Albuquerque Fire, Albuquerque Police, um, his mother, his neighbor, someone had opened up a gas line and set the back of his home on fire. And Peggy immediately says, this is Patrick. Patrick did this. So Peggy and Mark leave Florida, fly back to Albuquerque, file a police report, um, talk to the officers. Now the officers are telling her, I'm sorry, ma'am, this is an arson investigation. And Peggy's Peggy's telling them, this is, there is arson because I have a stalker. And that's why this house was torched. And there was many things in that area. Um, Peggy was trying to tell the police, you know, look at, look at the footprints in the grass. Um, Patrick walks a certain way with his left foot out or whatever it was. Um, these are the boots I bought him for Christmas a couple of years ago. Go to his house, find the boots. I'm sorry, ma'am. This is an arson investigation. We'll call you in if we need you. So that was August of 2002, and that was that was the time when Peggy decided to leave Albuquerque and move out to California. Um, between her and Mark, they thought the best thing for her to do was get a restraining order, get an attorney, file for stalking charges, um, and then you know you have to wait for a court date, and that was. I think the first court date was September. That was pushed into October. That was pushed into January. So there are several months that Peggy has to live in a city where her stalker is has free reign um, and can continue to harass her. So that was that was Peggy's time in Albuquerque before she had moved out to California. And then what happened on January eighteenth, two thousand three? So leading up to January 18th of 2003, Peggy had lived um, pretty much in hiding in California for those last several months. Um, Patrick didn't know where she was at. He used several avenues to try and find her. He posed as a private investigator. He worked through a private investigator. Um, and then in January, um, he had flown from Albuquerque, New Mexico, out to San Jose and started casing neighborhoods based on a conversation that he had with a private investigator. Um, this investigator gave him a street, which was a very, very, very long street running up the coast of California of a potential area where Peggy could be. So Patrick had made up um, 
fictitious ID, posing as a private investigator, um, had some business cards on him and began casing neighborhoods out there. So on January 17th, he was in the vicinity of where Peggy lived and he ran into a UPS driver. And the story that Patrick was telling was, I need to find this client. He had a picture of Peggy with him. Um, I have to find this client and I have to get a check from her. Um, so do you, you know her whereabouts? And the UPS driver was thinking about it and he was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not really allowed to give out this information. And Patrick's like, look, I just need a check. Take my business card. If you change your mind um, and if you recognize this girl, just give me a call and let me know. So at the end of the day, uh, the UPS driver caved and gave Patrick, my sister's exact location. So on Saturday, January 18th, uh, while my family was all in Ohio getting ready to celebrate my niece's um, sixth birthday party, uh, Peggy was gathering up some laundry um, and she was getting ready to go and have coffee with a neighbor. But when Peggy walked into her garage, Patrick was in there hiding. And um, he had on him, he had a, a handgun and he came in and beat her over the back of the head and threw her up against the kitchen wall um, where she slid to the floor. He put a big, pretty big gash into her head with the butt of the gun. And um, he tied her hands with duct tape uh, behind her back. And then he put duct tape across her mouth. So, you know, no one was going to hear her scream. Um, somehow by the grace of God, Peggy was able to get that tape removed from her wrists and pull that tape off of her mouth. And her neighbor was at the front door, knocking on the door, you know, wondering where Peggy was, if she was ready to go for coffee. And the sight that that woman saw when my sister came running out that front door, she's just screaming, covered in blood. Um, Patrick Kennedy's hear me. He found me. He's going to kill me. And Peggy and her neighbor were able to run to her neighbor's apartment, um, shut the door, lock the door. They ran upstairs. Um, Peggy was able to make a call to 911. Her neighbor was hiding in the closet. Um, as all this is transpiring, uh, Patrick breaks in through the sliding glass doors downstairs, comes upstairs. He finds Peggy in the bedroom um, and he's telling her, hang the phone up cut the call with 911. And the last thing Peggy says to the um, 911 operator is, I have to go, he's going to kill me. And at this moment, Patrick doesn't know that the neighbor is hiding in the back of this closet. And he's got Peggy face down, he's got the gun to the back of her head. Um, and at the time the, the SWAT team arrives and they are standing outside the bedroom door and Peggy's telling them, don't come in here. If you come in here, he's he's gonna kill me. And the officer says, Look, Peggy, let's let's not talk like that. Let's, you know, let's focus on your family. And Peggy said, um, look, I need you to call my mother in Ohio and tell her I love her. And I've had a niece, um, she's been sick all winter. Um, just let her know that she'll have a guardian angel watching over her. And can you please get a hold of my sister who's pregnant and tell her to name her baby after me? And shortly after those words were spoken, um, 
Patrick saw Rachel in the back of the closet and for a split second, put that gun down and told her, get the hell out of this room. And so Rachel was able to escape the closet. Um, as soon as she got to the door, Patrick picked up the gun and fired a shot at the officer who was standing on the other side of that door. Um, when that door shut, he took the gun, um, shot Peggy in the back of the head and then shot himself. So the SWAT team came in, um, you know, the first thing they did was go and grab Peggy and, and pull her out. Um, she died on the front lawn just a few minutes later. And he was, Patrick was um, instantly dead. So we had no idea that this was Peggy Saturday. We did not have a clue until um, that evening. I was at my mother's house. I had put my girls to bed and uh, my mother and I were sitting in the living room and heard a knock at the front door or heard the doorbell ring. That was the ironic part because in my mother's small neighborhood, nobody ever rings the doorbell. People just kind of walk, you know, in and out of each other's homes. And I was always hypervigilant when I was at my mother's house because I always felt like Patrick was going to show up at some point and kill my mother or he was going to look for Peggy and kill her. So I was very careful about approaching the front door and I sort of looked around the corner down the hallway and I saw two police officers standing on my mother's front porch. I knew the instant I saw them that Peggy was dead. I opened up that door and I said, just tell me, did Patrick Kennedy kill my sister? And on, on the surface, we knew that he had found her um, and that he had shot her. And that's, that's really all we knew that evening. But over the weeks, I would say over the, the, the following week or two, as we planned Peggy's funeral and talked to some people out in California that live near Peggy, um, the story unfolded and became a bigger and broader story. And, you know, people coming in and out of our whole home, you know, they, they want to know what's going on. They don't want to ask. It's very sensitive. But somehow I felt a very healing aspect of talking about what had happened to Peggy. And in, in this, the, the most tragic thing that's, you know, ever happened in my life, um, I felt like there was a decision to be made where I could be bitter for the rest of my life and just see the ugliness in the world, or I could do something to make it better. And that's sort of where Peggy's story um, began to live, that it was something very therapeutic for me that I thought by telling this story that somehow it would make a difference. Can you tell us more about how you helped organize National Stalking Awareness Month? So National Stalking Awareness Month, it wasn't, it wasn't even a thing, um, you know, about, I would say Peggy was killed in the middle of January. So about a month later, um, I had been watching TV and my, my youngest happened to be out of the room. We had like Nickelodeon run and I turned on the Today Show and there was a woman, her name was Tracy Baum. She was the director of the Stalking Resource Center in Washington, DC. She was talking about a stalking case, I think up in Wisconsin. And I was literally like, oh, oh, oh my God, who, who is the Stalking Resource Center? Why did we not know about this? I mean, when, when Peggy was going through this, there were little to no resources for a stalking victim. Everything was centered around 
domestic violence, sexual assault, rape, and I never ever saw the term stalking in any of the things that we were looking at. So I went to my computer and I typed out pretty much train of thought, everything that had happened to Peggy, you know, from, you know, being tied up in this abusive relationship up until the, the day she was murdered. And I sent it to Tracy thinking, okay, maybe she'll read it, but I don't think anybody in DC is ever going to call me back. And that's okay. So a day or two later, Tracy called me back and we had a conversation. And I remember Tracy asking me, what, what would you like to see done or to see happen? And I thought, if, if there was money to fund every law enforcement agency across the United States to get dedicated officers to deal with stalking, that's what I would love. Um, because that's where I saw Peggy's case fall through the cracks. I mean, time and again, every interaction she had with law enforcement. So, you know, Tracy said, well, let me, let me think about this and how, how we can go about doing something like this. And a couple of days later, she called me back and she said, um, Aaron Brockovich and LMNO, it's Lifetime Television, is starting a series, Ordinary Women, Extraordinary Lives. Would you be willing to tell them Peggy's story? I was like, absolutely. I will tell anybody that will listen in hopes that it would help somebody. So um, I got on the call with their producer, talked through Peggy's story, um, and the gist was they were just going to do a segment about Peggy. But when they heard her story in detail, um, they were so affected by it that they wanted to do something bigger and they wanted to partner with the Stalking Resource Center. So what came from that was all of us going to uh, Washington DC in July of 2003. So it was the National Center for Victims of Crime the Stalking Resource Center, um, Lifetime Television, Aaron Brockovich, and then Mark Wynn. Um, he's a retired law enforcement who I consider the expert in stalking um, and training. So we met in DC, we met with um, Heather Wilson, who was in the House of Representatives at the time, who was from the state of New Mexico. And I had a conversation with her while I was there. And you know, she said, Debbie, we have laws, there's laws in all 50 states. I think what we're missing is education. Um, education for our criminal justice system, but education for our general public. And that's when I thought that's where Peggy's story is going to live. That story is gonna be a catalyst for change to help law enforcement recognize the crime of stalking and to deal with these victims but we're also gonna be talking to our general public and talking about what this crime is. I think there's a lot of victims out there that have a hard time using that term, stalking, because I think it's it's thrown around so much in our, our society. So talking to Heather was, was fantastic. So we went into um, the House of Representatives on the floor and that's where Heather was able to ask Congress to recognize January as National Stalking Awareness Month. So that was in July of 2003. So the first um, National Stalking Awareness Month was actually in January of 2004. So this year we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of National Stalking Awareness Month. That's awesome. There's been so much education that has happened between 
even just the mid nineties and now uh, speaking from personal experience. And now there's the whole extra added layer of cyber stalking. Mm-hmm. And I cannot even imagine um, it's it's just ever evolving and ever changing. And I feel like this is one of those things where the laws are going to have to kind of keep evolving with the crimes as they appear. But going back to your advocacy work, what are some tips that you can offer for any of our listeners who feel like they are being stalked or know of a loved one or family member who's being stalked? Um, it was interesting. I was with a, a group of survivors yesterday. We were talking about this. And, you know, one of the things that that I say all the time is just believe. Believe what they are saying. Listen to what they are saying. Oftentimes that's trauma talking. You know, so what they're saying, it might not really make sense to you, but it is it is pretty clear what's going on in their life. And they might not come out and say, I am terrified that I am being stalked. They might say, well, I'm feeling a little bit uneasy about this person that I started a relationship with, you know, so just just listen, listen in, be compassionate, you know, stay away from that victim blaming. Like, what did you do to make them do that to you? I mean, that's it's not the way to go with a victim. Um, another, another thing that I often say to victims is reach out to a victim's advocate. You know, a lot of people will go, I, I'm going to go to the police, I got a file report, they have, you know, some difficult issues working with police, but a victim's advocate, those people, their profession, they are golden. They will be your your eyes, your ears, your crutch, um, working your way through the criminal justice system. But I think that's something that we don't we don't think about enough. And I also don't think that victims know that that's an available resource out there, but it's a good one. Where is it that someone can find a victim's advocate? Um, most of the time you can look at any of the shelters or domestic violence centers, battered women's shelters, you can look up any of those in your area and they will have um, advocates on staff. You know, in college campuses, I do an awful lot of work with um, colleges. Please utilize um, those resources that you have on campus, those confidential resources, because we do have the Title IX reporting, um, you know, if you went to talk to faculty. But, you know, think about the, the very confidential resources that are on your college campus or in your town. That's a great point. Is there anything else you want to offer to our listeners today? Don't, it's funny, but it's not, God bless, don't watch you. I I mean, there's so many things out there that glamorize stalking and romanticize it and we see it on we see it on T-shirts. We see it on greeting cards. We see it dur- especially during Valentine's Day. Um, don't be part of the problem. You know, stalking stalking is not love. Stalking is not romantic. Um, it is it is none of those. Get involved with the National Stalking Awareness Month movement. Um, Spark on social media. I think I can't remember their name offhand but you can add that later. They they do a great job of posting year round, but especially in January, um, tips, resources, statistics. Um, you know, I think it's follow us legally. So follow them on social media. They're, 
they're a great resource. Yes, you know, just just to add my two cents in here, there was a time I just don't think people realized that stalking existed if you were in a relationship with someone that was stalking you at some point, which is kind of where Peggy's story comes in. People tend to take it a lot less seriously. Well, well, you were in a relationship with that person. They're just trying to get you back. But it it is stalking. And I was actually in a relationship like that when I was in high school and then it continued into college. And I don't think I had a name for it until years after it happened to me. So yeah. it's still one of those things where people don't realize that you can be stalked by someone that you loved, thought you loved, were in a relationship with, and that doesn't make it any less real. It, in right. fact, it's even scarier because that person knows so much about you that you can't get away from them. And when, when Peggy was in this and, you know, I thought I knew how to tell her what path to take because I had a stalker and it was at a relationship that I ended because the behavior was a little bit too creepy. You know, where are you going? What are you doing? Who are you with? Long before social media was a factor, but I had just gotten my first job calling me all the time, you know, so I, I cut it off. And then, you know, so back in the day was answering machines. So I would have, I would come home from work and there'd be like 20 messages on my answering machine, running the tapes out. And then there was like, violent artwork that was drawn and left on my door. And I had a friend that I went to college with that was a police officer. And I was telling him about this, like, what, what do I do to get this guy to stop? Like, I don't want contact with him ever again. And he was like, well, you know, what's happening to you? And I'm like, no. And he's like, you're being stopped. So back in 89, in the eighties, anybody that was being stopped was probably someone in Hollywood or high profile. So I did not, I did not make that connection at all. So his advice to me was get an order of protection, get him to stay away from you. And that, I mean, it worked like a charm. So when Peggy was in this situation, when she was like, oh my God, I'm, he's starting to stop me. I thought we got this. If it ever gets bad enough, you get an order of protection and we stop. Well, that just, that order of protection for her. I mean, he went in and had an order of protection written against her because he said that you know, X, Y, and Z about her. So. Yeah. I think that's what people need to realize is that every case is different mm -hmm. and you know how someone's going to react and you just kind of have to try to put those parameters into place and, and hope that it works, but know that sometimes you may have to be very vigilant even with those parameters in place. And um, that's where advocates I think come into play because they talk a lot about, a lot about safety planning, you know, you know, what are things, some things that you can do to keep yourself safe and not, you know, offset that or upset that um, offender? Exactly. Well, I thank you so much again for being with us today, um, Debbie, and for sharing your sister's story. I'm so sorry for you and your family's loss. And I'm so sad that you guys had to go through that. Um, but Pe Peggy's story will hopefully help others. And I hope that people stay safe and check out the resources that we're going to give them and know that it can happen to anyone and no one asks for this and no one deserves it, most of all, I think. Thank you. I wanted to close today with some general tips for victims that I pulled from the Spark website. Number one, 
Trust your instincts. Victims of stalking often feel pressured by friends or family to downplay the stalker's behavior, but stalking poses a real threat of harm. Your safety is paramount. Number two, call the police if you feel you are in any immediate danger. Explain why the stalker's actions are causing you fear. Number three, keep a record or log of each contact with the stalker. Be sure to also document any police reports. Number four, save evidence when possible. Stalkers often use technology to contact their victims. Save all emails, text messages, photos, and postings on social networking sites as evidence of the stalking behavior. You may also want to consider how to use your technology and your devices in a safer manner. For more information, you can visit the National Network to End Domestic Violence Safety Net Project's Tech Safety site. And number five, get connected with a local victim service provider who can assist you in exploring your options as well as discuss safety planning. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. We'd like to thank Debbie Riddle once again for sharing her sister's story and continuing to educate the public on the dangers of stalking. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.